pound per 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 pound per per pound Yeah, do you want to do yeah, the intro yeah, today? The intro. All right, let's do this. Okay. Podcast. <laughs> I, I'm always like trying to like copy and be like, yo, yo, yo. Uh, <laughs> Podcast. Hey guys, this is JoJo mm. from 699 per pound. The podcast that you know and love, a bi-weekly pod where we interview leaders and professionals from a wide variety of careers and lifestyles, just like the diverse food options found at a Korean-owned hot food deli. Uh, thanks for everyone for listening. It's kind of been a while for us uh, since we've gotten together to record. JK's jet-setting across the country, doing parties, and... Um, Everybody is doing their own thing and glowing up together, but it's really nice to be back and we have some awesome guests today to talk about a variety of things. Yeah, yeah, a very <laughs> wide variety of things. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I'd like to introduce this guest uh, for this episode. Uh, he's a friend, more so, yeah, he's a, he's a friend. Um, his name is Mr. Sam <laughs> You Hunt. thought about that a little nah, bit. No, nah, just because, like... <laughs> You know, we know each other. Uh, we've been acquaintances for quite some time now, mm. and we have a lot of mutual friends. But like on the physical, we haven't really hung out that much. But Sam is uh, somebody that I look up to, and I've been following his career, and um, he's been showing a lot of love to everything I've been doing. He's definitely one of the smartest individuals that I think I know personally. Uh, why? Because you know, my man is a social scientist, man. He's uh, he's published so multiple books. <laughs> He's uh, currently a professor at the University of Western Australia, but before that, he was teaching in Staten Island, right? He was teaching in Staten Island. He's from the the Bronx, um, and at some point in his life, he was uh, teaching in Singapore. You know what I mean? Which he told me that it was kind of like a dystopian society. Like, I think Sam was the one who told me that, yo, like, I went to the 7-Eleven, and then the employee stepped out for lunch or some shit, and then all these uh, um, customers came in to the shop and nobody would leave until the employee returned to uh, ring up the register. Yep. Oh, wow. And he told me that, yo, Singapore is just kind of like this weird, perfect society mm. where motherfuckers get caned. You know what I'm saying? Oh my God. But like, but it's it's like so perfect that he felt like it was weird because he's from the Bronx and shit. You know, like which is perfect in its own way. Right, right. Yeah. Which is perfect Some in its own say, way. Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, on that note, I mean, you know, Sam's not always in New York anymore because he's out in um, Australia. But you know, I heard that he's gonna be in town, so I was like, bang, 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 let's get him into the podcast, <laughs> man. Spot. There, it is, there yeah. it is. You know, everybody in this room right now is not in their hundred percent. Like Sam is jet lag. I literally just got back from Korea like mm-hmm. seven hours ago. Yeah. Um, JoJo's being JoJo. And I'm sick. Yeah, she's and sick. And I felt today. But um, yeah, man. So we're gonna get right into it, man. Power through. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. so Thank with that so on that note, let's uh, welcome man, Mr. Sam Han to six ninety nine per pound podcast. <laughs> bang, bang, bang. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, for sure, bro. So, go ahead. Go ahead. No, yeah. No, seriously, thank you so much for coming. And um, upon uh, investigating after Jake, you threw your name out there. I was like, he sounds so familiar. Like, where did I where did I see his face? Like, where did I hear him? And I realized that when I was prepping for our first episode Mm. with Donnie, I was, you know, 
investigating. And Donnie doesn't have like a crazy social footprint. No, he's um, off grid. He's, Donnie. he's off the grid. Not recently, man, he's been getting. Yeah, a lot recently. Yeah, all right. And it's been all thanks to our active. podcast, I think. No, no, I'm kidding. He's been being a lot more active. <laughs> yeah, but I remember I somehow founded the unlisted YouTube video of your interview with Donnie for your podcast. I think it's live with. It was Sam do it live. Yeah, do, do it, it live. live. Shout out do to Zola Rally. It was yes. a joke. Uh, <laughs> Phil Fuck it, do it live. Yeah. Yeah. It's like so interesting because like it's so hard to find it, but then I remember finding it and listening to the episode, and I, that's really where I got a lot of the information. And um, I, I I was like, oh, that's where I saw Sam. Like he was going back and forth with Donnie and and reading your. Um, uh, descriptor for your podcast. I actually took a screenshot of it. Um, Do it live with Sam Han is a podcast with guests of varied backgrounds, professional interests, and life histories for conversations that range thirty to forty-five minutes. And I was like, wait, that sounds like our podcast. I know. I, I low-key kind of like pioneer. Yeah, I kind of jack his style. Probably. <laughs> That's all good. I mean, we're all jacking somebody's style. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah. But yeah, on that note, I mean, um, Sam and I first met, I think, through Rex Dizzy. Through Rex. Mm-hmm. Rex is uh, so unexpected. He is the straw that stirs the drink, Rex. <laughs> <laughs> He's been named on this podcast so many times, know, and he hasn't even I come know, on. I know, We probably need to bring him on. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. But yeah, so on that note, man, I think I kind of need to get back to the foundation, to the essence, man. Like, how was it like growing up in the Bronx as a uh, Korean-American cat, like in the 80s? Yeah, so I was born in Korea, and then my family moved when I was one. Um, we obviously got sponsored by a family member, so mm. I am one of the many chain migrants uh, that Trump despises, mm. yet has in his own family. I know Melania's parents are in the United States as chain migrants, so mm. oh, wow. take that for what it is. The irony. Uh, exactly. But uh, yeah, we first moved to Los Angeles because that's where my aunt was, uh, and that was kind of the heart of Korean-American yes. life at the, at the time. Yeah. And then my father, for some reason, decided that there was work to be had in uh, El Paso, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, which is on the Rio Grande. And at the time, my father, who's 85, got work at a Kibbles and Bits factory. And oh, minimum, like the pet. What, like what the, is that? It's dog food. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, my God. Yep. So he that was the only gig he was able to get. My parents never went to university in Korea. Um, so that's what he did for a little bit. And then he realized this is not it. There's no Korean people around. It's hard. Yes. So they were like, let's go to where there are some Koreans. Mm-hmm. And that's when we moved to the to the Bronx. To the Bronx. Yeah. Like, is this specifically around Gun Hill Road? That's like right. Tracy Towers? So... <laughs> That's so funny, Tracy Towers. Yeah, now I grew up on 199th and Grand Concourse right. on a little uh, street called Valentine Avenue across from Grace Lutheran Church, which was one of the, which is one of the few African American Lutheran churches. Um, but that whole neighborhood is called Bedford Park. So if you went to Bronx Science, you know where that is. Lehman College, Clinton. Mm-hmm. Clinton, you try to avoid, you know, going. Yeah, if you, go, if you went to Bronx you, Science, you didn't want to get got. Try, yeah, you know what I'm saying? They try to avoid uh, Clinton. Yeah. yeah, shout out to all my homies at Bronx Science. You know what I mean? Taking For that sure. bus back home. For sure. So yeah, so that 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 in the mid '80s, mid to late '80s, was a bit of a Korean neighborhood. Right. Uh, we had a Korean supermarket there called Susie's. Uh, I lived there for quite a while, and then um, I went to PS81. Right. Uh, which is in Riverdale. Right. And then um, I was accepted into this weird program called Prep for Prep. I don't know if people are familiar yeah, like with it. Like a lot of, uh, I, I guess, like, so Prep for Prep, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'll let you explain it, but I know, like, you did that. I know, like, some rappers, like Homeboy Sandman was in that. Angela Yee. Yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of, like, hip-hop personalities that has, like, had a thriving career, they kind of went through that is basically for, like, 
uh, very smart kids in the public school system, and then they kind of like help nurture you, and then they put you in like prestigious private schools right. in certain cases oh, wow. and cover that. Like mm. the city covers that, right? So it's not the city. So what ends up oh, happening? Oh, not the city. Okay. Now, okay. so what ends up happening is. Um, uh, for those of you in the audience who went to New York City Public Schools, there are citywide and statewide exams in the fourth and fifth grade. Right. Um, and SSAT and shit. Exactly. Yeah. So what you have then is a you get a grade. And what Prep for Prep as an organization does is that identifies all students of color who test in the 99th percentile. Mm. So the 1% of students of color in the New York City Public School system, they invite to apply. So usually in any given year, you have probably like 2,000 applicants and they pick 150. Wow. Uh, there's a rigorous testing process. There's an IQ exam. There's several rounds of interviews. And they basically say, we're going to train you for 14 months so that when you enter into private schools, the most elite private schools in New York City and also boarding schools, in 14 months, you will have already done what you, we, we will have trained you to excel in these kind of elite environments. Mm. Mm. So I ended up in that kind of uh, fortunate position. So I went from PS81 and then middle school 141, and then I, went, I ended up going to Ethical Culture Fieldston School, uh, which is in the same neighborhood that I was living at, but I had no idea that there was a school that was charging you know, $20,000 a year yeah. with, with, with children yeah. who are you know, the, the, the children of kind of yeah. uh, American masters, so to speak, like right, uh, right. Chuck Close. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. So it was, it was kind of a, a stark contrast, to say yeah. the least. So were your parents like pushing you to do this, or were you pretty... It's like self-sufficient in that, like, I know this is what I need to do. That's a good question. I feel like um, they definitely were about good grades, obviously. And this program, when they heard about it, I mean, they thought it was the ticket out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. And at the time, I obviously didn't understand how privilege works. I didn't know that if you end up in the right environment, that kind of sets you up to have a very high floor. Yeah. Right? Meaning, even if you do average, once you end up going to a certain kind of high school, you'll end up going to a pretty decent college or whatever. Right. And I identified that early on. Mm. Right. So it was grueling. It's basically every day for two summers while you're supposed to be on break, you know, while, you know, your friends are doing their thing, playing basketball, whatever, during the school year, after school on Wednesdays, all day Saturday, and you're taking classes like that are ridiculous, you know? I'm learning Latin, Yeah. you know? How old were you when you were learning Latin? This is, this is, so this is fifth grade. What? Oh my God. Sixth grade. <laughs> oh my God. Exactly. So, so yeah. I knew, I was like, all right. As we're like, like picking our noses in fifth grade. So for me, like, it was like, well, I'm doing this because I'm I know. Like memorizing Pokemon names. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I was like, dang, I want to go play and ball. Were, yeah, I, I want to go play childhood. with my pogs. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Pogs. pogs. Yeah, so Throwback. I'm a little older. But that, that's that's what it was. So I guess for me, I didn't have a full conception of what that would kind of lead to. But obviously, I knew it was worth the sacrifice mm. because it's grueling. You know, to be honest, I don't think I've ever worked as hard as I did when I was in fifth and sixth grade. Yeah. You know what I mean? Wow. Uh, all this, I, have, I have a full head of gray hair, <laughs> and I'm just thankful I have Silver hair pogs. at this age. But it's because of that. I feel like it's deferred kind of stress symptomization. You yeah. know what I mean? Wow. <laughs> That's so interesting. But like, you know, at that age for you to have that grit to stick to that um, without maybe your parents. It's not like they were like, you know, whipping you to like finish homework. It's, they didn't even know what you were doing. Of really, course. Right. Of course. So it was really your self-determination that made it happen. Where did that come from? I think it's a lot of it has to do with kind of understanding that this is really important. Yeah. And, you know, it's really also about not disappointing your parents, except yeah. your parents don't really have a conception 
of what sort of environment you're going to. For them, it's yeah. an elite program and these are elite schools. Mm -hmm. right. And that means for them, an elite college and a good life. Right. Yeah. But they don't know exactly the details of all that. Right, you know right, what I'm saying? Right. No, for so sure. for me, it was like, all right, there, I'm gonna kind of try to do well, but I also want to go to the, for instance, like when I was picking what private school I wanted to go to, yeah. I wanted to go to a school that was kind of like my speed, the thing that I wanted to do, yeah. as opposed to kind of completely being enslaved, but my parents is like my, my parents' vision of what I would turn into. If it was up to my father, I'd go to like all boys school where I wear a tie to, to class, yeah. but I did something very different. I w and I ended up going to a school with the word ethical in the title, uh, which is kind of, uh, to put this lightly, it's sort of a champagne socialist limousine liberal school, <laughs> wow. meaning it's people with money mm. who kind of are very kind of like socially progressive, yeah, yeah, progressive, yeah, yeah. etc. Nah, so, so that's what I that's what I liked because I walked on campus and I saw it was artsy, people dressed crazy. Yeah, uh, I was like, this is what I I want to do. Yeah, and my parents couldn't say nothing because they know it's one of the best schools in the city. Right, mm -hmm. So right, I kind of right. negotiated that, but not with any big yeah. intention. It was more like if I'm going to do this, I need to have something that I like. Yes, so that's what it was. I mean, you could have went to like Horace Mann if anything right yeah, which but I was is like these are a bunch of squares you know what <laughs> like to, to talk cool. just to speak in like you know the parlance that I would have spoken at back in back in the day it's like a bunch of herbs over there oh. you know what I'm saying so I was like nah I'm not gonna do it right mm. right now nah, so just to kind of break it down I mean I don't know that private school um, like cause I went to a small Circuit. private school mm -hmm. myself mm -hmm. I went to a small private school in Jackson Heights called Garden School and one which, of your teachers I know who, 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 who do you know Chung Mun Chung Yep, Mun. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, that's one of my. That's one of my big Should bros. Should we phone him in? <laughs> what that's was Jakey like? A child? So, so I went to this. Yeah, because he's from the Bronx as well. Exactly, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So it's like that Bronx Korean community is tight knit. But anyway, so I went to a small private school myself, and then I remember like my team went to play this basketball because we were like the broke private school. We were like the <laughs> broke independent. So Ooh, what you mean? What, uh -huh. what like a lot of people have a misconception of private school is that what it means is that you're independent from getting state funding. You know what I mean? So if your alumni and like the parents contributing to the school has money, you get more facilities. But if like your parents contributing is just like middle class immigrants that probably has like two laundromats, you're doing all right. But yeah, you can't pay like forty thousand mm -hmm. dollars tuition. Your gym is still going to look like shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, right, right. But because we were an independent school, we occasionally had like basketball games against like the Calhouns and the LREIs yeah. of the city. And one time I remember we went to play this game against Horace Men. Mm. It was like a fucking culture shock. Like this shit was like a private. It was like a, a high school, but it had a college campus. Wow. You know what I mean, like yeah. their library was bigger than our gym. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so... I, I so I remember I so I distinctively remember Horace Men, um, but it wasn't until I spoke to you that you know you told me like yeah that school was kind of more like the conservative a little bit more like in my mind yeah in my right, mind. right leaning Herbs. whereas like your school was kind of like you, you I think you told me like Spielberg's kids went there at That's one right. point uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov the ballerino his kids mm. went there Susan Sarandon's kids went there Ahmad wow. Rashad's kids went there you know what I'm saying? I can go down the list so a lot of like basically like Hollywood royalties, especially with like a left wing brain That's right. and like, you know, artists and kids of like famous artists. So the kind of stereotype of kind of like Hollywood liberals, mm. those of the people in the, in the entertainment industry that are based in New York, a lot of them tried to send their kids to, to Fieldston. Gotcha, wow. gotcha. That's really cool. So well, I was up in there like, whoa, this is wild. Yeah. So, so, so tell me about that because yeah. like, because you said that earlier, right? Because, you know, I think immigrant parents like, 
one of the reasons why they push us to go to these Ivy Leagues so, so much is, is not necessarily because they think that the education is so much better. It's really because what you said, by association, you're going to get more opportunities. Mm-hmm. Right? And the right. connection. Yeah, yeah it was, that's interesting because I don't think my parents really understood that for mm-hmm. real. Right. I think they were like, all right, it's elite. Yeah. And, you know, they looked up the rankings and it ranks very high. Yeah. So they were still very much kind of tied to numbers. Only later when I started going to school and I was telling them like, man, like, this is what the school is like. They were like, oh, that's what it's about. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times immigrant parents have a conception that if your kids work hard, the American education system is going to take care of you. Is somehow going to reflect a certain kind of meritocratic ethos. Yeah, like Korea. That's right. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, look at it now. That's not the case. Exactly. That's right. But that's like their kind of archaic thinking. That's Mm -hmm. right. Because Mm -hmm. in Korea, you take an entrance exam, and depending on how well you do in that entrance exam, that makes or breaks your admission to university, to the SK or Y, right, in Korea. So I think they had that expectation. And then when this kind of came about, they were like, oh, wow, that's totally different. Right. right. They didn't understand that. And I think as I went from seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade on through high school, they realized, oh, that's where the power lies. Mm. Right. And I think that was a kind of eye opening experience for them as well. Because, mm-hmm. you know, my parents had, you know, you mentioned laundromats. You know, my father owned a fruit and vegetable, sco- a fruit and vegetable store on Arthur Avenue. For people who are not familiar, like the foodies. Italian, yep. Italian neighborhood. That's in right. The Bronx. Wow. Yep. So Arthur Avenue is the real little Italy. It's like, you know, and my father had a fruit and vegetable store there in the mid 80s. Uh, all the people over there who have the kind of heritage restaurants would know my father if I explained oh, to what? them for sure. Like there's there's a restaurant called Dominic's. Uh, I know which Dominic's. Is, yeah, Dominic used to come to my store. Oh shit! Um, there That's was a mozzarella. Up. There was a cheese store right next door. So my father is the only sixty something Korean person who has a fine taste for like fresh mozzarella cheese. I love it. <laughs> um, oh my god! That shit is a great big story oh, right yeah. there. It's Seriously. wild. So then, of course, and my father had a fruit and vegetable store, and then later that turned into a, a dry cleaners in the Bronx. You know what I'm right, saying? So right. you know, just to just to kind of contest our economic status. We were not making a lot of money. I never had my own room. I slept in the living room my entire life. Mm. And when I did have a room, it was... I shared a bed with my younger brother. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right, right. And then to walk into an environment, as you said, Jake, he's like, it looks like a country club. Yeah. And I know for a fact that Horace Mann, the person who did the grounds, the grass, was the same person who did it for Yankee Stadium. Mm. Wow. You see what I'm saying? That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a fucking bomb right there. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, so that's, that's wild. Sick. So uh-huh. if, you know, yeah. like, the, my last, my sixth grade year at middle school, 141, right? We had metal detectors. Mm-hmm. Right, and then I course. walk into I mean, a, you was in the Bronx, yeah, yeah. And it's like Riverdale's like, you know, people think, oh, Riverdale yeah, is soft, whatever, whatever. We still have metal detectors. You know what I'm right. saying? So mm-hmm. it's like, it's so interesting because just down the road, there is this kind of amazing bucolic environment full of people I didn't know existed. Yeah. Exactly. You know yeah. what I mean? And exactly. that's a weird experience. Yeah. Um, but I think I was lucky in that I fell in to a very, very, very nurturing academic environment mm. oh, and great. one that valued my presence. Mm-hmm. See, it's one thing to be like, OK, you're here and you're going to get something from us, but we're not going to make you feel like you're a part of this yeah. a community. Community, right. that's yeah. right. And I wouldn't blame them if they didn't because, you know, my father's not Chuck Close. Yeah, he's my not going to donate. That's right. Mm-hmm. But what was so interesting is I came in at the right time. The way that Fieldson is set up is that they have two kind of elementary schools and then they come together in the main campus in your seventh grade year. So that's when I came in. Mm. So nobody knew each other anyway. Right. So everybody was making friends. Right, yeah. right. So that worked out great because people were like, oh, you're part of yeah. us because we don't know anybody anyway. Yeah. So the kind of friend groups weren't already made. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing because those are the friends that I still have to this day. 
That's so great. That's I sick. mean, I'm staying with someone who I've known since ninth grade. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. You know what I'm right, saying? Right, right. Uh, yeah. This morning, I had brunch before I came here with my friend who I went from seventh grade through college with. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we came from very different backgrounds. Yeah. His mother's a professor of literature. My mother was cleaning other people's clothes. Yeah. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But that's my boy right there. So no, it, I got so. very lucky. Um, yeah. And that's maybe a little bit of me, but I also, I feel like it's the environment. I got very lucky because it's not everyone's story. Yeah. A lot of people a lot of people come from kind of disadvantaged backgrounds. They enter into elite environments and they feel it. Yeah. And they feel very much outside of that. Yeah. I was lucky. I knew I didn't have money like that, but I never felt like I couldn't participate. Yeah. Mm. And it's not me. That's like, you know, a kind of... A bunch of different things coming together. Yeah, because yeah. I think I do hear a lot of stories of people who, um, you know, in the beginning they go into these environments where, like, oh my god, finally I have like a chance to like transcend like my parents' status, and but they end up feeling like an outsider. They end up like, oh no, they're not going to accept me wholly, and they go back right. and retreat. So it's really refreshing to hear that that wasn't your experience, and it'd be really interesting to know like. Were you interested in social science right away? I mean, this place has ethical in it. Yes, <laughs> yes, like yes. Title. That's a that's a very good question. Yeah, um, you're like a you're like a mind reader over here. So one of the th- first times I encountered the term social science was for the summer reading. So at Fieldston, everyone was assigned a book, and uh-huh. the whole like from seventh grade on, everybody had to read the book. Mm. Which right? book was it? So the, my seventh grade year, it was a book called Amazing Grace. By Jonathan Kozel. Mm-hmm. An amazing grace. Yeah, I read that shit in seventh grade? Yeah. Damn. And <laughs> I don't know what in happened. In Latin, no. I was in like, Latin. <laughs> I was like, yo, y'all need to read. You gotta uh, catch them all. To kill, a, to kill a mockingbird in seventh grade with Harper it, Lee and shit. But oh like, y'all over here reading oh, wow. Kozel's yeah. Amazing Grace. So That's Kozel is, deep, a, is, a, is, is not quite a scholar because he's not technically a PhD, but he's a kind of a very interesting critic of the American education system. Right. And Amazing Grace is about New York City and it's about the Bronx. Wow. Right. And I think Fieldston did that to be like, listen, you all are a bunch of privileged white kids mm. and you don't know that in your own backyard, while y'all get to lay on this beautiful grass and this beautiful environment, yeah. there are serious things happening right now. Right, mm. right outside a gate. That's right. Yeah. And for me, I was like, that could have been me. You know what I mean? All the stories that are contained in Kozel's book, which are rendered with such kind of dignity and also nuance. Mm-hmm. I was like, that could have been me. I could have been written about. Yeah. Right. And then when I turned over the book and, you know, it says like the two genres mm. and it says general nonfiction, social science. And that was the first time I had ever encountered that. So I was like, oh, it's about people like me, but it's a systematic study of something that I also find to be not fair unequal but mm-hmm. it's also my story yeah. and i was like that's great that you can write about your story and about your reality and have it be so as i said uh dignified you mm-hmm. know what i mean so fieldston was the first place where i encountered the notion of social science which is a systematic study of our social reality that's fascinating and that was amazing to me that was amazing to me yeah, yeah. so you kind of got found interest about this when you were like in the seventh grade like you just kind of like it just it wasn't fully formed but yeah yeah. the kind of seeds of it for sure that's crazy my next question was gonna be like what is social science but Mm. then you kind of really i mean you were reading my mind right now but you (laughs) answered it yourself and you explained this so succinctly but i think i still have more questions about that um you know so obviously that book is a great example of social science but it's like a very far-reaching 
field and people say I'm a social scientist, right? Right, Like how is that different from a normal scientist? Right. That's a great question. So social science as like a a term encompasses specific disciplines. And traditionally it means uh, sociology, anthropology, economics, psychology. That's Mm. basically everything in human life. (laughs) Right. But with the exception of my favorite things, which is like literature and philosophy. But Mm. sometimes they are included, sometimes they're not. Literature sometimes and philosophy sometimes kind of included with what's called the humanities. But for me, I view the humanities and the social sciences together. It's a study of human existence using the material that we make. So what distinguishes, for instance, biology from anthropology is that we study in biology humans through something that's already built. Anthropology will look at what humans have created, whether it be culture, whether it be literature, music, artifacts, and then try to deduce what about those things kind of makes us human. Mm, You see what I'm saying? So biology and anthropology, for instance, both study humans, but from different angles. And what I love about social science is that it has at its core a certain kind of mystery about what it means to be human. Because it's not, I think we all have felt this. we don't, we hardly really know ourselves, right? We think of ourselves as this or that. And then sometimes we act, we react, we think, we behave in certain ways that kind of confuse ourselves. And that to me is one of the most important things about social science, which is at its core, it makes, it, it assumes that the human condition is not fully known already and that natural science like physics, biology, chemistry will not be able to tell us the full picture and that there's something else happening. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what social science is to me, which is a systematic study of that side of humanity. Right, so which kind of leads to the next point about like um, some of the studies that you've conducted. I mean, um, on our way to the the recording booth right now, like you were just telling me about um, about religion and how it's being um, influenced by technology. I mean, that's something that like a biologist would you know, like there's no real methodology in biology to approach that or to do any sort of study around that, right? I mean, I think a biologist would approach it perhaps through an evolutionary perspective. Right. Like, why is it that religion emerged? What sort of evolutionary need is it filling for people? Right. Yeah. So, but from a social scientist's perspective, like, how would, you know, how would you, like, how have you uh, um, approached it? Right. So, religion for social science is, you could view it as kind of fulfilling a function. Like what kind of needs do we have to kind of constitute a very grand mythology, a kind of transcendent entity that we somehow find meaning is. And I think for the most part, the majority of social scientists would say religion emerges from a very human need to construct meaning. Mm. And and I think you kind of struck a very key point because that's kind of like my whole shit behind religion too. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like when people say, yo, you're made from the reflection of God, but God is you and you is God. I mean, that's kind of how I look at it, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like... We kind of really created religion to fulfill a need. Right? Well, that, that's, that's, I mean, of course, there are people who are believers and they would say, not at all. That's right. like a divine entity. But uh, as someone who's not exactly religious anymore, uh, I would say religion emerges from a particular kind of need. And that need right. has to do with meaning because uh, we can't just live. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We have to have some kind of reason for living. Right, right, right. And yeah. religion oftentimes, you know, gives us that. Yeah. So, yeah, go I ahead. I have a question. So, you- I feel like a lot of people in our generation say that I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Mm. I, I struggle with to unpack what that means. Do you do you have any 
insight as like a social science perspective in the studies that you've done of what that distinction would be? And is there even one? Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's almost like the starting point for a lot of the sociology of religion, because yeah. one of the overarching kind of empirical facts is that people are no longer kind of identified with a single religion. So it's sort right. of, it's called spiritual seeking, meaning I'm going to take a little bit from this, I'm going to take a little bit from that, and they can constitute my own kind of belief framework. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's seen sometimes as the decline of institutional religion mm -hmm. and the rise of personalized religion so basically what oh. I, like basically that's me yeah, like you know exactly. what i mean like i kind of take a little bit of everything right. i find interest in islam yep. mostly because of hip-hop yeah and then i'm i'm you know i grew up as a buddhist right but i also feel the need of christianity you know mm -hmm. like because in colloquial terms in america especially in english thank god god mm -hmm. bless america that's right. like that's right you know what i mean it's because, built in yeah it's built in it's kind of like how taoism and like buddhism and confucianism is built in in asia that's right you know so so you, there's actually a term for that, spiritual seeking. Yep. So there are many books written about that phenomenon. Yo, that's a six ninety nine per pound that's gem. That's a gem right there. <laughs> that's a gem right there. Spiritual seeking. You know what I mean? So it's not like a weird thing. It's kind of like not it's kind of how this society has evolved into. You can argue that it, it's an extension of how we kind of frame ourselves as consumers, mm. right? So you know we no longer live with kind of basic needs. I need this car. I need this pair of sneakers. I need this computer. Um, I need this fragrance. No, you want that, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm. And that kind of post-scarcity culture that we live in is obviously a product of capitalism, et cetera. And we also treat religion that way. It's like we're going through like a grocery store, right? And you pick or, what you need. Or we're, going at, we're at the mm -hmm. Korean deli at the hot counter. Yes. And we're, we, we're and it's, at and it's, and it's basically. Oh, shit. Yo, the new religion is like a six ninety nine. dollars <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it was like a hot food buffet. Because they're not asking, oh, is it the salad or is it the this? No, yeah. we just weigh it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So that's Literally. what it is. We're just, oh, we're just picking shit. from it. It's a buffet. Yes. And that's sort of how Yo. we treat not just religion, but that's how we treat a lot of things. You know nah, what I'm saying? Nah, for real. Like when, when I was younger, it was more fixed. Right. Like, if you were a hip hop head, you were a hip hop that, head. I was exactly thinking about that. Yeah. Like if you yeah. saw a picture of me in sixth grade, you know, I had like yellow Timberland constructs. You know what I'm saying? Right. I was probably smelling like polo sport, unfortunately. Oh, wow. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. Shaved my head. You know what I'm saying? And it's like I couldn't then all of a sudden be like, I'm going to start wearing Doc Martens. Mm. Now it's like it's a grab bag. Yeah. You know what I mean? And right. I think religious identity works in concert or in line with identity generally. Those kinds of fixed boundaries are a little bit more flexible, a little bit more loose, right? And I think kind of consumerism has a lot to do with that. And I think the internet has a lot to do with that as well. Yeah. Because yeah. I was going to ask so, in terms That's of the technology portion of what you were telling Jay Key, can right. you? Give us like a brief overview. Yeah, so like um, this was part of my PhD project, mm. uh, which ended up becoming a book. And what I was interested in was how people who we would identify as evangelical Christians actually are very forward thinking in their technology use. Mm. And that's an interesting fact. But I also wanted to know what sort of affordances that relationship has. In other words, do you have to give up a little bit of your evangelicalness if you yeah. want to use the Internet? Or mm. do you have to kind of change your tenets of faith, whether in terms of practice or in terms of thinking or in terms of politics, if you want to be like heavily on Facebook, for instance? Yeah. Because I think it's too easy to say, oh, y'all are just doing church, but on Facebook. Yeah. No. The, the very fact that we're kind of transferring that from a physical space to a digital space means things are changing. And I wanted to explore that. Um, so I think what's interesting is a lot of the groups, especially the kind of American evangelical Christian groups that I looked at for that project, they're interested in technology as a way of 
of, of engagement. And yeah. I think this relates to kind of your work. Mm-hmm. And engagement is not seen as bad. Mm. So it's not the kind of old school thinking where it's like, oh, no, that's secular. No, 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 no. I'll give you an example. So one of the groups I looked at, there is someone who's the chief technology officer, which is very bizarre that a church group has a chief technology officer. This person made a lot of money in the first dot-com boom in the 90s because he had a wrestling fan site that he sold to the wrestling company. Right? And then he became the CTO of this big church that I looked at based in Oklahoma. And I was like, so how does that work into what you do now? And he goes, I'll give you an example. They, at the time, bought Google AdWords that were related to pornography. Oh, wow. And then you clicked on the joint, and then it's like, Jesus. Oh, my God. Yo, what really? The Isn't that amazing? So they did SEO manipulation, and that's that, I think, is quite interesting. So, so they could th- save whoever that is wanted to trying bust to the sin? Nut. That's right. Yep, yep. Oh, my God. So, so that's quite interesting to me. They I also... Can't. If you look on Yo, iTunes, the number one, the number one Bible app uh, is made by them as well. The oh, number wow. one Bible app. Okay, so what is the name of this group? Uh, they're called Life Church. Life Church. Yeah, okay. and it's quite interesting. And for them, I was like, do you see this as kind of like delving into secular culture? And they're like, no, because what we're doing is we're trying to get people in. Mm-hmm. And what's so interesting to me about that is we have, because of popular press, we have this idea of evangelicals as being backwards. Right. You know what I'm yeah. saying? As backwards looking, as fire and brimstone. Con- yeah. Right? And conservative. And they are. And the thing is, when I ask those questions about what's your stance on homosexuality, what's your stance on abortion, they gave me nothing. They were like, no, those things don't matter. That's between you and God. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we're really interested in is engagement. And I found that to be quite interesting because for them, technology is a way to break the boundary between the religious and the secular. Mm. And that's Mm. interesting coming from a self-identified Christian group. And that's not nothing to me. That's something that technology allows for. That's something that digital culture allows for. That's fascinating stuff. Oh it's fascinating, gosh. man. Yo, that so, shit, yo, manipulating SEO to... Yeah, but now have, everybody knows how to do that, right? I mean, <laughs> now it's just like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah like, the Russians too. Shout out to the, yeah, shout out to the current president administration, but... Uh, so you so you alluded br- briefly on what went into this research. So you interviewed these people and you studied them. So you, as a social scientist, when you're pursuing a, a, a deeper knowledge of a subject or like trying to publish something, like what are the steps to make that happen? Yeah, so it's uh, this is very unique for academia. Academia is somewhat kind of in a weird place because we only care about speaking to other academics, which is mm. very unfortunate. Um, so the way that scholarly publishing works is you create a project and it has to have a sound methodology. It has to have a sound kind of theoretical framework. And you either go one of two ways. You try to publish in a scholarly journal. Most of you know that through like JSTOR from college, right? Yeah. Um, and that really doesn't have a, re- a readership. It's for other scholars. Yeah. Or you publish in scholarly presses, which is what I've done as well. like, you know college students to fucking finish their thesis yeah. exactly. they just need to post some random shit yeah. exactly. in the bibliography you know? that's right that's right that's right yeah. so that's sort of how we are kind of uh, assessed in terms of our performance yeah. so we're Which only sucks. well it sucks in that we're somehow not reaching out to the greater public right. yeah, which should be our orientation but you know that's the kind of the way that the specialized higher ed system in America has turned out mm-hmm. so for in my case that was something that I had done as part of my dissertation. Yeah. 
and I lopped off bits of it and published them in scholarly journals. But I'm interested in books. As I said, yeah. my start in social science was reading a book. Yes. And for me, a book is far more kind of uh, appropriate to ruminate on a topic because it allows for divergences. Mm -hmm. Because on a journal article, it's something like six to 8,000 words, which may sound out like a lot, but is not. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to keep it tight and yeah. you have to trim the fat. But I like fat. Yeah. I like divergences. I want to go on a tangent. I want to explore as opposed to yeah, kind of and that's stories. pursue a particular thesis over and over and over again. Yeah. So I like what books are able, what, what books allow us to do stylistically. So I tend to be a books person. Mm. And I think in kind of among social scientists, you'll see kind of two different types, journal article types and book types. Yeah. And I've tried to keep a hand in both. But to be honest, I like books. I like reading books. Before I came here, I went to the Strand Bookstore. Right, I yeah. saw that. You know, and I I'm looking that. at all the used books. Because that's, to me, you can tell a real story and right. you could render something in its full complexity. Whereas if you have a, a word limit, it's some things are going to be left on the cutting room floor. Right, right, right. Um, so in my case, I come up with a project kind of, I guess, in a professional sense, it's on spec, meaning no one has paid me to do that. But that's why we are kind of employed by universities. Mm -hmm. The universities pay us to teach and research, Yeah. right? So we just kind of pursue our own research projects. And then uh, for in my case, if I have enough, I write up a book proposal and I kind of send it out to the editor that I have a relationship with. Yeah. And they meet and they say yay or nay. Mm, mm. That's so interesting. So you were... Do you think you were interested in religion because of your upbringing or was it, was it a natural interest? Inevitably, it has to do with my upbringing. Yeah. We mm -hmm. lived across the street from our church. Mm -hmm. I did everything at church. Taekwondo, and it was a Korean church. It was a Korean church. Taekwondo at church, Korean language classes at church. Church was our family. Mm -hmm. And in the 80s, you know, like I remember in third grade. People were like, it was kind of like multicultural day, and people were like, oh, where my family's from, right? Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, oh, my family's from Korea. They're like, where's that? I was like, don't worry about it. It's between China and, and Japan. Yeah. You know what I mean? But then now there's such interest in Korea that blows my mind. I have colleagues in Australia whose kids are teenage girls. Yeah. And they're, they're all K-pop everything. BTS. Mm. And I'm like, mm -hmm. what? Like, yeah. in the 80s, it wasn't like that. Right. So It wasn't even like that until the late 2000s. That's what I'm saying. Like, this yeah. is like a very new phenomenon. That's right. So, you know church gave kind of Koreans a place to meet. Yeah. Um, so that's that, that to me always kind of fascinated me. Because to be honest, I was into church. Yeah. I loved it. Because it gave you meaning. It gave you purpose. But I also liked the reading part. Mm. Like I was a wild kid in that I would... They were like, oh, no, if you, you want to be a good Christian, you got to read the Bible. So I read the Bible cover to cover twice. What the wow. fuck? So I'm like, let me do this then. Yeah. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And, you know, and in church, they, you know, they'd be doing this... All right, like who can memorize the most Bible yes. verses? You know what I'm saying? So you won the competition. I was killing the game. <laughs> yes, because also it's like you can do it in Korean and in oh, English. Oh, you know what I'm saying? So then that to me, I took it Amazing. so seriously, but then I realized it Yo, wasn't. You could have been a pastor, dude. <laughs> it wasn't, but that's the thing. It wasn't the words themselves. It was the learning part. Right. Yeah. I like the learning part. I like the reading part. And and, and I, I mean to be fair, like yo, Bible is kind of like a. It's kind of an interesting book because every time I read it, like motherfuckers is getting bodied, man. That's <laughs> sure, right. man. Like for hundreds sure. of thousands of motherfuckers Game of getting Thrones bodied. Get out the you know way. what I mean? It's like <laughs> no doubt. Yo, this motherfucker stabbing this motherfucker in the back and. I mean, political intrigue, yeah. uh, you know, kind of like sex scandals. It's a very violent everything. book, man. <laughs> you know it's, what it's, it's, so, it's, 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 a, it's a wild book. It's a heavy book. You for know sure. I mean? And then one of the things I realized, you know, once you're like a crazy kid trying to read the Bible, Bible code to cover twice, you realize 
a lot of these people don't know what they're talking about. Because mm. mm. I read the joint. You know what I'm saying? So the pastor will have a sermon and you're just like, wait a minute. Mm. That's not what it said. Mm-hmm. Is, or that's not how I read it. That's not how I read it. You know what I mean? So that to me automatically was like, well, why aren't we having a discussion about this? Yeah. Mm. You know what I mean? Because I read the thing too. So then shouldn't I also have a take? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Oh shit! So and it was wasn't like, and that's not obviously something that happens all the time, yeah. right? You know what I mean? That's right. not part of the thing. So it it was part of my kind of leaving the church, which was, oh, I take this more seriously than y'all do. Mm. You know what I mean? Because you 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 was in too deep, man. I was. And you I got think, in too deep, so you was just like, now nah, fuck this shit, man. Y'all don't know the truth. Everybody knows this. For right. everyone in the audience who's ever been to church, you know all the scandal. The backbiting, yeah. the the all, all kinds of stuff happens, and what is it over? Money and power, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, y'all talk a big talk, mm-hmm. but when it comes down to brass tacks, you're just like everyone else. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was a certain a kind of moral disenchantment. If y'all were really about what you claim you're about, you wouldn't act like this. You wouldn't be like this. You know what I mean? So for me, I realized. I don't need it to be a good person. I think I think what you went through is kind of like what a lot of uh, Kore- mind you, I'm not a Christian, but Korean American Christians are going through right now. Like you know, especially when I speak to a lot of my peers, they're like, "Yo, all this church drama about he say she say." Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, money. Pa- where the money at? Money. Yeah. You know, why is the pastor dry? Why is yeah. why is his whip a Cadillac? You yeah, know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Exactly. Like, you know, like the Changlun names, like getting more clout. Mm-hmm. You know, certain Chipsa names couldn't become Chipsa because of all this uh, clicky shit going on. That's right, because it's, it's an up or down vote. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, the gossip and yeah, and you know, certain pastors be smashing shorties on the side. OMG. You know, like oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all types of shit. So I think that's kind of one of the reasons why there's like a huge disconnect and an almost like an exodus of like young Korean Christians were, I guess it's similar in many other communities in white, black, yep. Latino communities as well. Like they're not like, they're, they're, you know, the whole concept of going to church every Sunday doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. That's a good point, JK. It's like, if you look at the research that's out, especially by the Pew, the PEW, which yeah. is a major research center, it's across the board that second generation immigrants mm. aren't as kind of tightly bound to their religious identities in which they were kind of raised. And to go back to the fact, is it also because we're much more comfortable? We're more assimilated. Yeah, we're yeah. not, we don't need a church as much. That's right. Right. Because what church provides for kind of immigrants fresh off the boat is status. Right. Right. So like my father is just a fruit and vegetable guy. Yeah. He's the dry cleaner. You get mm-hmm. no status there. You know what I'm saying? There's no kind of uh, honor to that work, mm. right? Uh, and he, he, he can't kind of defend himself. He can't act. He can't really express himself in everyday life. But in church, you can. Mm. So all the kind of status that is deprived of you in everyday life, you can flex on Sunday. Mm. You can say, <laughs> you I'm can just... flex on Sunday. That's, that's a shirt. T- that's a T-shirt that's a right t-shirt. there. You, you know what I mean? Flex on Sunday. Yeah. That's right. So for me, it's quite interesting. And I almost am sympathetic. Mm. If I... My father and my mother moved to America when they were 30. I'm right. 35. Right. So I know myself at 30. And I, w- I would not be anywhere near to having a child, migrating to a country whose language I can't like speak. Like real life issues. Exactly. Yeah. And I've moved, I, you know, I've migrated twice in my life already, and uh, three times in my life already. And I don't think it's, it's been as difficult. Yeah. So what's crazy is I think for them, I can see why they need church for that as well. Yeah. And that to me is valid because church is not all about belief. It's social. It's communal. Mm-hmm. It gives you a sense of belonging. And survival. That's right. Where am I going to get babysitting? Where mm-hmm. am I going to get this job? You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's very important. And I think uh, 
just as as long as we acknowledge that church is not simply about belief, then we have a healthier understanding of the place of church. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's only when we think of it as belief only, then the person with access to that kind of expert knowledge of the belief is the one with power that inevitably is the pastor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Bong, but church bong. is more than that. Church is community. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I liked how right before we did the recording of, you know, when someone will ask you, like, are you Christian? Like, I really loved your answer. If you can share that with us again. Yeah, I said I'm a recovering Christian as mm-hmm. if I'm a recovering alcoholic and, you know, went from the and – and I'm not saying that in a kind of trite way um, – Recovery is interesting because in the addiction literature, you're always in recovery. You're never free from it. Yeah. Oh, shit. What? Right? Yeah. Yo, why? Yo, explain that. That's because it's that, that demon can always come back and haunt you. Mm. Uh. Right? That's part of AA. And one of the things I love about AA as an institution is that they kind of begin and end with something called the serenity prayer. And the serenity prayer is written by a, an American theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr. And in the serenity Yo, hold prayer. Hold on, hold on, man. There's a whole lot of knowledge being <laughs> dropped right now, left and right, man. Okay. I, know, I, I hope this isn't up. too technical. No, this is no, great. No, no, this is great, man. It's a whole. I just wanted to give a little bit of space for the listeners to digest. Yeah. Serenity, so, ser- prayer. serenity prayer. And part of the serenity prayer is about asking for uh, knowledge of what you can control mm. and knowledge of what you can't control. Mm, right. Okay. And I love that. And I think to have that sort of humility towards what is a disease, addiction is a disease, is the same thing. It's the same way that I treat my own Christian upbringing, which is I can't be like, no, nah, I'm not Christian no more because that would be a f- that would be false. You yeah. know, that obviously shapes who I am. I grew up in the church. So it's yeah. not like all of a sudden I can be a different person. But I'm, re- I'm in recovery in that that's not how I identify myself. Mm. Right. If someone was like, hey, are you Christian? I'd be like, ah, not really. I grew up that way. And my hope for a lot of in particular Korean-American Christians, is that we can get to the point that, for instance, now cultural Judaism exists. So a lot of my Jewish friends would say, I'm not Jewish, like I'm not religious, but I'm culturally Jewish. And we all have an understanding of what that is, and we respect that. You see what I'm saying? And I wish we can get to the point where I can say, I'm culturally Christian, and people are like, okay, cool, I get that. That's a really, really great way to do it. No, 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 for real, definitely. Because I have, I mean, I am Christian. Okay. I don't think I'm recovering. (laughs) Um, I've definitely had... Um, it's so hard because when I was questioning it and everything, you know, you feel guilty about questioning of course, it. Of course. You can't fully examine those feelings. And I also didn't want to dishonor everything that it did give me. Mm-hmm. So I love the way you put it in that, like, I'm, you know, acknowledging what it has given me and how it shaped me as a person. It's not dismissing this as a force of my life. Right. Um, and I think from that place, you can really examine that, like, you're still honoring that experience and you're like, you know, it put me to where I am, but I still want to find my own way. And I think that culturally Christian thing is resonating with me a lot and that I, I just, when you don't have a word to explain yourself or a, an idea, it's just, it, it gets really hard and you kind of give up. And I'm just like, okay, I, I can't think too much about this anymore. I'm like, everyone is asking me to explain myself and justify myself. So having a word like that is really empowering. Um, and I feel like social science kind of helps you with yes, those words. Yes, I mean- you know, the, the, the rap, the bad rap that social science gets mm. is that we just come up with terms for things that we already know. No. I think mm-hmm. that's great. Because yeah. there's a sociologist named Irvin Goffman, and he said, sociology is the study of the mundane. Mm-hmm. And the mundane is the most important yo, because we a, don't, a gem, we don't think about it. Sociology is the study of the mundane. Because mm. the mundane mm. kind of go, recedes into the background. Right. We never think about it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think to me, what's ama- the best kind of social science is you look at things that seem utterly obvious, mm. and then we de- we denaturalize them. 
We act as if they're not supposed to be that way because they're not. One of the things that sociology basically believes is that this is all produced. Mm-hmm. Nothing is given. Mm-hmm. The way that we live now wasn't always the way we lived. We should know this because our ancestors 100 years ago were not wearing these kinds of clothes, speaking this language in this place. 1,000%. Yeah. You know what right. I'm saying? So obviously something has to have occurred. There was a process that gave us this. Mm-hmm. But the thing is when we live in something, we live in a social reality that we know well, it becomes second nature. Yeah. It almost becomes first nature. Yeah. So part of the task as a social scientist is to denaturalize what seems utterly obvious. Hmm. You know what I mean? Wow, that's deep, man. I think this could kind of lead into the next conversation about um, Sam um, having a career, starting his uh, professor, like a PhD, not, yeah. not PhD, but after you have obtained your PhD, yeah. your first job yeah. as a professor on a tenure track yeah. started in Singapore, yep. yeah. which in itself is like a cultural hodgepodge mm. yep. of so many different, like you can't really attribute to where Singapore as a culture really stem from because the country itself is like, like a less than 100 years mm-hmm. old. You that's know right. what I mean? Like, that's right. That's right. It's like a hodgepodge of all these different things. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that society and also about, um, you know, just what it was like because I remember some of the first information that I got about Singapore was through you yeah. way before Crazy Rich Asians. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. So, I know, I know. That so, kind of worked yeah. out. Yeah. yeah, so like, tell us a little bit about that, man. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I should explain how I ended up there. So when I was finishing my PhD, I was kind of applying for all these jobs, you know, and um, I saw one in Singapore. I didn't know nothing about it. I knew they spoke English. Right. And so I applied because I already had my kind of applications. I, I was sent out like 200 applications or whatever. You know what I'm saying? It was crazy. And then I just forgot about it. And then I heard back and they said, listen, you're on the short list. And when you're on the short list, they mean they're going to fly you out. Mm. So I was like, all right, worst comes to worst. It's a free trip to Southeast Asia, which I've never been to. So I went out there and I was like impressed. And they made an offer I couldn't say no to. So I didn't say no. I said yes. Um, And it was interesting because I came in not knowing really anything about Singapore. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, And it was quite interesting because it was so different from New York. But I think one of the things that I did, and this may be like a bit of New York arrogance, which is, New York is just the best. So I'm not going to go in expecting New York things. Yes. And that kind of helped me a lot because mm-hmm. I just took it for what it was as opposed to comparing everything to back home. Mm-hmm. And I, I enjoyed it. I mean, that's where I met my wife. My wife is from Singapore. So it's not like it's a bad place, but it's very unique. It's very unique because of the way that things are regulated. And a lot of it is not really cultural. It's a product of its size. It's mm. 5 million people. Right. And there are many, many expats. Nearly 60% are Singaporeans and the rest are foreigners. Yeah. So when you only really have 2.8 or 3 million people to kind of control, it's easy to do, especially if the party that basically brought the country out of poverty into the first world is basically delivering on its promises. And that to me is so interesting because it's so different from America. Yeah. Mm. It's so different from America. It's also different from Korea. Yeah. Right, you know totally. I mean? So that's why it's, it was such a kind of eye-opening experience. Um, and teaching there especially, teaching sociology there, yeah. which is really about questioning everything, was an amazing experience because the students, to my surprise, were craving it. Yeah. They're craving it. It's almost like you move to a place that's like a blank slate and you can – because you're surrounded by people who are – have completely different belief system as you, culture as you, look different. Right. Versus teaching here where a lot of the beliefs are solidified and everyone's in the echo chamber. Right, right. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you compare my experiences uh, at the College of Staten Island 
Yeah. And then right. teaching at a university in Singapore, it was night and day. Yeah. It was night and day. Can you explain a little bit? Yeah, like at the College of Staten Island, I would teach uh, some classes at night yeah. so that, you know, people who were working could kind of continue their uh, degrees. And on occasion, someone can't find babysitting, so the babysits, you know, and listens to mm. me drone on about whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You right, know what right, I'm saying? Right. And that's completely normal. Mm. Uh, I had a couple of students who were war veterans uh, from Afghanistan, um, young kids, 20-something, you know, two, two tours. You know what I wow. mean? I mean, one of them in Fallujah. I mean, they saw some real stuff. Right, right. So I, was, I felt kind of like stupid talking to them about like social reality. Right, they've seen right, some real right, things, right, you know right, what yeah. I mean? Right. Uh, whereas in Singapore, it's quite different. I think um, there is a certain kind of, um, there's a learning curve, obviously, because I want to meet the students where they're at. And once you kind of understand that kind of social world, you can kind of tailor what it is that you teach to them. And I think in Singapore, one of the things I found to be quite interesting was they were fascinated by me as a person. Mm. Whereas mm-hmm. at the College of Staten Island, they're like, all right, you're my professor. I need to do your readings. I need to do yeah. your you know, essays or whatever. Well, what is it about you as a person that fascinated them? It's like it's an Asian face with an American accent who basically is unlike any social type that exists there. In Singapore, mm. yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. It's almost like seeing someone that you've heard about appear before right. you. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was, and I was happy to play that role because yeah. I think part, what's great about sociology is I can be like, oh, it's a study of something that you already live in. Whereas right. like if I study biochemistry, I have to be like, around us are all these biological and chemical <laughs> processes, but we can't see it. Yeah. For them, it's already there. So mm. that kind of connection was already kind of there for me and I could kind of leverage that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, not to jump around, but I, I felt this in Australia. So mm. I visited recently. Did you really? Yeah, and okay. I know you study there. So my boyfriend's Australian, actually. Oh, wow. Where from, if you don't mind me asking? He's from Sydney. He's okay. from Strathfield. Strathfield, okay. is a very Korean suburb. Yep, so, it's Western Sydney. Yeah, yep. it was very interesting. But yeah, speaking of like people... I feel very much in my community in New York City. Mm-hmm. In, I am so lucky to be surrounded by... You know, fellow Asian Americans who have who are interested in creative things, who are interested in kind of forming your identity away from you. I feel like everyone's on the same page. For sure. For and sure. then going to Australia and number one, the accent of they they're like, oh, are you Canadian? Or you know, they. Think, yeah. I get that a lot. Yeah. Because I think they don't want to offend us. Yeah. By saying we Americans, so they're like, <laughs> oh are you from God. North America somewhere? Yeah. I mean, there's exactly. only two countries or exactly. three countries. One of them is Mexico. Yeah. So they're like, are you from North America? And I'm yeah. like, I'm American. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. And they them being fascinated with you and where or when I talk about the things that I was involved in, like, it was like, oh, so what do you do in America? It's like, oh, like, uh, I have a podcast and I, you know, work in media mm. and we talk about Asian American issues. And for them, you know, I was like, is there any Asian Australian issue or community? And they're kind of, were like scratching their heads a little bit. They're like, oh, and they were very fascinated with me as much as I was fascinated with them of like, you know, Asian faces with Australian accents there you and, go. and all that jazz. But I mean, we talked about so much, and there's so again, like JK said, you know, there's a part two to be had. But before we move on into your newest works and kind of our wrap up questions, is there one thing that you would want young people to be more curious about? Well, not just young people. I think just but, people in general, yeah, right? But maybe our yeah. listeners specifically. I think our listeners are pretty old, man. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, but they're still <laughs> young. You, you wouldn't consider yourself young. 
Nah, I think I'm getting up there, man. You're, I, you're, I, just, I just turned 30. I'm, I'm nah, washed. I, and I, I consider myself young, too. Because, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, in yeah. academia, mm-hmm. it's such an old person. Right, 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 right. My right. colleagues' children are my age. Oh. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a life flex. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Flex. Or, or not. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, yeah, but, but you, it, you get the gist of my, yeah, the spirit I, of my question. Yeah, I think it's, it's um, I think we have to be, on the one hand, brave to kind of examine things, but then also kind of be fully uh, cognizant of the fact that we may never know. Because I think we're, for a lot of times we're hard on ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Like, why don't I have full happiness in my career, yeah. in my love life, in my family life, whatever? And I think a lot of that is because of an expectation about having things figured out. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think there's a fine balance to be struck between kind of being brave enough to examine, but also kind of being brave enough to be ready for not knowing the whole picture. Because mm-hmm. if we were able to know all the answers immediately, well, then what's the point of living? Mm-hmm. You know, curiosity killed the cat, but I think it drives humans. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's, it would be so, if someone were to say, you're not allowed to ask questions, I'd be like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. No, I would be sure. so upset. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? And I think, you know, it's, it's, I say that because I think we are sometimes like very much like expected, especially kind of, uh, immigrants themselves or children of immigrants to kind of do right by our parents. And that means sometimes making career decisions that may not 100% reflect your interests, but you want to somehow do well in terms of, you know, being a good person, being a good uh, kind of pious person vis-a-vis your parents. And I feel like that is totally unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Right. That is totally unnecessary um, and unfortunate and unfortunate. And speaking of Singapore, that sometimes... Um, I was very much insistent upon that because over there, there was so a lot of- So you were over there, man, disrupting these kids. I was yeah. trying, I was trying. <laughs> You're corrupting was, their minds. That's right, because I was like, listen, like, it, you have to see how the rest of the world is. Mm-hmm. If you can leave for a day or if you could leave for a year, you have to experience it, yeah. whatever you can afford. Because, yeah. you know, especially in Singapore, which, which is one of the richest countries in the world, yeah. you have everything. Right. But you sometimes then think, oh yeah, if we don't do things- like this, then we won't have this good stuff. Mm. And then they go travel abroad and they're like, ah, actually, you can have a little chaos and society could be perfectly functional. Yeah. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's important for us too because, you know, especially those of us who are second or third generation, we have to be more selfish. Yeah. Like, that would be my mantra. Mm. Be more be se- selfish. Be selfish. Mm. Because it's really difficult to do. Yeah. It's right. easy to, because it requires you to know what you want. If I say be selfish, then the second question is, what do I want? And that, that is a deep question. Yeah. And we should think about that as opposed to just doing, like ticking all the boxes. No, that's yeah. dope because I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like all of us, we are taught to be selfless. Yeah. You know what I mean? And for us to kind of shift gear and then just kind of really just basically just kind of really pursue something that we really want with potentially hurting some other people around yeah. us. Whether that's or disappointing them, disappointing right? Disappointing them, yeah, right, yeah. right. So I think that's kind of like a big challenge, but it's a very important challenge to take. Yeah, and I was, when I talk to younger college students or people of our background, you know, who have a lot of expectations from their parents, and it's, sometimes you can be, see it in a way where I'm just doing this because, you know, my parents want me to do it. It's like you're absolving all responsibility of figuring exactly. out you what you it. want. And it, 
I struggle with that of like everyone of just like when if someone would to ask me, it's like I can't even divorce those expectations to fully commit to like what I want. And that's something I'm working through right now. Um, but it was really true of just like, you know, it. what you say about being brave, it does take so much courage to take responsibility into your life instead of being like, I'm only doing this because I'm, you know, a victim of my circumstance because my parents are telling me to do it. Right. If, if I wasn't doing this, I could be doing something else, you know, right. if it wasn't for my situation. But no, then you're putting that responsibility on them. I mean, that's also unfair. Totally. And complete opposite of what you're trying to do. Right. Right. So, and I think that's exactly it. I mean, you know, and I would say that to my parents as well. You know, now that they're semi-retired, I really want them to be selfish. Because yeah. I know they couldn't when I was around, when my brother was around. You know what I'm saying? And being now, uh, and like, a sim- like I... I'm 35, they moved to America when they were 30. Mm -hmm. They had to give up a lot, you know what I mean, of themselves. And it's like, y'all need to be selfish. Y'all need to do whatever you want, you know what I mean? And that's, so that's not just a message to like us, like second and third generation, but to our parents as well. Yeah. Because that's so important. That's so important. Um, Because, you know, like in Korean culture, in the language, it's built in. We don't call anyone by their name. It's so-and-so's mom, mm-hmm. so-and-so's dad. Yeah. That is heartbreaking. If someone called me, like, let's say, like, if I was permanently known as my son's father, yeah. I lose all identity. And, of course, women bear the brunt of this yeah. in Korean culture. Yeah. You know, I don't want to, you know, cast any dis- – it, it, we, we, it's true. You know what I mean? So that, to me, is an important message to older folks as well. You know what I mean? That you're not just someone's parent. Mm-hmm. You are you. Yeah. Like, I hate to say this. I don't know what my parents were like when they were young. Mm-hmm. I don't know their real personalities. Yeah, I know them as adults. I know them as immigrants. But what were they like when they were 15, 16? Were they doing weird things like I was? was <laughs> were they getting into trouble? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And that's sad, but it's also like, it's not too late. Like, go ahead, do your thing. I mean, I don't know if my parents are going to listen to me yeah. or whatever, but, mm, you know. Wow. Yeah. But, um, you know, I know I know you're currently in Australia right now. Um, you were in Singapore yeah. for some time, and now you're teaching in Australia. If you could just kind of tell us what that's like, and also um, tell us about some of your latest work uh, in terms of books that you've put out. Um, yeah, if you could just yeah, Australia is interesting. I live in a city called Perth, and Perth is in Western Australia. So yeah. if you want to think about it geographically, Sydney and Melbourne are sort of like Miami, Atlanta. Mm. Right. And Perth is like Los Angeles. Not right. culturally, uh, yeah. but in terms of geographical distance. But it does have like a surfing culture. It does have like Perth a lot of Perth is world-renowned for surfing. Right. Uh, the, uh, there's a region called Margaret River, which is very much known for wine and food as well as surfing. Um, so Perth is an amazing city in terms of kind of natural beauty. Um, I live 10 minutes from the beach. Uh, it's oh, one of those so things. That's like really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I moved there. Uh, my wife has family there as well. So it's kind of interesting. Nice. Um, having lived in Asia and now living in Australia, there's obviously interesting comparisons. Yes. Mm. Australia feels like America in certain ways because it's obviously a white majority country that's Anglophone. But it's also very unlike America. Yeah. Uh, just in terms of basic things. Australia has a lot of space. There's around 30-something million people in Australia. And it's a fucking entire continent <laughs> it's, of it, land. That's right. Yeah. You know, and so that makes people dispositionally a little different. There's space. Mm-hmm. That means there's room to breathe. Yeah. Anyone who's ever visited any kind of Asian, you know, cosmopolitan city, Beijing, Shanghai, Singapore, Seoul, you got to have your elbows out. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because if you, you claim if you let people space. on, they're going to take advantage of you. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Australia is totally different. Yeah. Australia, they're the lucky country. That's there's, what they're sometimes there's called. There's like plenty for everybody. Up until recently, yes. Right. And Australia is sort of interesting because it's in a position where um, they need more people. Mm. So they do have an active immigration policy, but they're very selective. And that's so different from America, where the mantra has been like, we got to keep these immigrants out, which mm-hmm. is ridiculous because we keep this place afloat. Yes. But it's sort of th- th- that's been sort of different. Mm-hmm. And, sure. and being selective is also interesting for Australia because that whole country is basically built by convicts. That's right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's, that's right. just kind of pillaged and raped the indigenous people. I mean, I can go on about yeah, the treatment yeah. of indigenous people yeah. in Australia and how horrendous it's been. Right. Yeah. Um, but I must say, it's uh, it's been that that's been a very rich learning experience for me because right, I knew right. nothing of that history except for a little bit, uh, and that's been very, very, very kind of like eye opening as well. Right. So yeah. from the Bronx to uh, Singapore to now Australia, yeah. in that process, you were putting out books constantly. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, I have yet to read one it's from all, yeah. Sam. <laughs> it, 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 these are books Sign that it, aren't please. in like regular bookstores. Right, you know right. I mean? But so tell us about like some. I mean, I know that you have the book about. Um, uh, interaction between religion and technology, but can you tell us about any other books that you know audience or listeners should be aware of? Yeah, I think a lot of my work is rooted in that kind of nexus between religion, media, technology, mm-hmm. right? And that led me to questions around, okay, so what happens when kind of like things that are sort of religious also interact with technology? And I think one of the places where I found, even in kind of secular societies, a sort of religiosity was around death. We treat death as somewhat sacred, as sort of a kind of place where people's faiths emerge, even mm-hmm. though they maybe not really kind of profess religious people, right? There's there's hardly any really kind of like secular funerals. Yeah. Uh, a funeral itself is sort of a religious experience in many ways, right? Yes. Um, and so I was interested in what happens when uh, death kind of is mediated online. And of course, I think we've all encountered this somewhat, when someone we know on Facebook passes away, there's an interesting kind of um, interaction that occurs on their Facebook profiles, right? So I'll give you an example, a personal example. One of my graduate school advisors, Jerry Watts, who was a political scientist of African-American intellectual life, he passed away from a stroke when I was in Singapore. And I wasn't back home to grieve with my fellow graduate students, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, people who I came up with. And it was interesting because I was able to kind of grieve along with them on his Facebook profile. And that was meaningful. It was interesting because people weren't just posting kind of like eulogistic kind of things. I did. But some people were posting like James Brown songs because he loved James Brown. Yeah. Or they would write kind of interesting like phrases that he would use Mm. or post pictures that they took in the 80s that they had on like regular like, you know, photographs, not digital photographs. And they would like go through the archives and post them being like, hey, this was us in 85. You know what I mean? And I found that to be quite interesting because you could on the one hand, you can be like, you know, oh, well, digital culture has ruined everything. Now we even grieve online. But to me, it's still powerful. And it brings people together. And there's a certain kind of uh, vocabulary and as well as a kind of cultural code that is used when people grieve on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, oh, that's interesting that we are able to do this online. So then that brought me to other ways or other instances where death and digital culture kind of interact. So that's what this new book is about, which is where digital culture and death broadly understood interact. So another thing I look at is like, uh, and this is relevant to to Korea, um, online suicide packs. So wow. one of the interesting things about Korea and Japan is that they are they have some of the highest youth suicide rates in the OECD. Mm-hmm. 
And what's unique about kind of uh, there's a particular phenomena in Korea and Japan, which is people go online to find people they commit suicide with. Mm. What? Oh in the West, God. obviously. <laughs> right? so, it's, so in the West, we have a very kind of personalized or psychologized view of suicide. Mm-hmm. I feel, quote unquote, depressed. Thus, I will now take my life. Mm. Whereas in Asia, there was, I feel like I want to end my life and I need to do it as a collective. Mm. And I found that to be so interesting. So even in suicide, it's like a collective thing in Asia. That's <laughs> right. That's right. God. That's right. That's, and, that, wow. and, that, and that's it's so fascinating because people are going online because that's where you find others like you. Mm. you know that's I mean? kind of like how cults get formed, right? Like, I mean, there's a like, you know, you know cults. Right. Like it's a, yep. a, 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 you know, like a group suicide. Coll- collective yeah, suicide. Yeah, yeah, collective yep. suicide. Cult and culture are related terms. They bind us together. Yeah, they bind wow. us together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Damn, yo, that's some deep shit. That but, is. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I think the point about um, mourn, moaning, uh, not moaning, mourning, not moaning, <laughs> not moaning, <laughs> mourning, mourning, uh, mourning, because, uh, you know, my grandfather passed recently, mm-hmm. and then I posted, like, something online, and then I was trying to think to myself, like, is this evolution of how we think about or grieve or is this just me wanting attention of the fact that and and, and wanting attention from this is that a form of evolution I, I mean you know I think, what I mean I think it's difficult to say whether it's part of evolution because you need a kind of broader perspective right for that. right right but I think even if it is a, a desire for attention what's wrong with that okay I'm glad you brought this up because another aspect of that death book that's coming out I write about uh, selfies at funerals so th- I don't know if you all are familiar selfies. with this. Yeah, so there are there is a, a Wait, Tumblr. Wait, hold on. Motherfuckers take selfies at funerals? That's right. So uh, if there is a Tumblr, um, which is called Selfies at Funerals, oh my God. which kind of collates based on hashtag people who post on Instagram their selfies at funerals. It's like, oh, too bad Nan died, but look at my outfit. You know what I mean? OMG. Now, on the one hand, you can be like, what's wrong with people, these millennials, yada, 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 all that stuff. On the other hand, it's like, yeah, at a moment where you feel like you need some kind of support and you may not like that kind of attention seeking, but it is a form of gathering support when you really are emotionally vulnerable. Mm. And you could argue that, well, we go to Instagram because that is where we find society. That is where we find community. Oh, you know what shit. I mean? Okay. So to me, to dismiss that is to kind of miss the whole point of, well, society as such is digital now. Mm. That's where we go. When, when, when you hear things like, oh, I heard about that new restaurant. You didn't hear about anything. You read about it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Someone told me. No, mm. someone typed something and then you read it. Mm. You see what I'm saying? So all that kind of social interaction is happening in a digital space and it doesn't feel separate from the regular space. Yeah. Right? It's all seamless at this point. Yeah. So for me, something like what you're talking about, it's, it's all good. Because even if it is attention seeking, what's wrong with wanting some attention when you're grieving? That's mm-hmm. a perfectly mm-hmm. human yeah. thing. Yeah. Wow. You know what I mean? And I think you know people weigh um, significance on digital spaces versus physical spaces. Right. And it's just like, how is you know sharing your grief online different from like in a giant funeral that costs probably thousands of dollars. That's right, that's right. And yeah, and the ethics, I guess, of just like why, what makes something more significant and more valid than the other. That's right. Fascinating. Yeah, because yeah, really what we should be concerned about is the person who's mourning or yeah. grieving that they're going through it with others. Yeah. Mm. And if for them, others are Instagram, 
all right, what's wrong with that? Yeah. You know what I mean? As you were saying, is it more legitimate that we throw a weird party at the end that mm-hmm. costs like thousands of dollars? Isn't that also bizarre? Mm-hmm. You know, so. Yeah. Okay. Um, so on that note, man. <laughs> on that very <laughs> on that note, morbid on that note. We ended yo, on, on that death. morbid note. But yo, this yo shit. This is what I'm. This is what I'm talking about, listeners, man. You know, Sam is just one of those guys. Like, if I, we could have, we could have had this whole podcast just about New York City school life or hip hop or sports. I mean, he's a big Knicks fan. Big Knicks fan. Unfortunately, and I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a Knicks fan as well. It's it's unfortunate, but that's, yeah, a, that's we, an affliction. Yeah, <laughs> this, we we could have had a, any conversation, but you know, like I feel like being a social scientist of anything is just like kind of grooms you to be a worldly person, yeah. which is varied interest, which is dope. So, I mean, if you're listening to this and you have any interest in academia, man, look into social, look into becoming a social scientist, man. So, shout out to y'all, shout out to Sam. But on that note, man, um. I think this is like our go-to wrap-up questions at six ninety-nine per pound. Um, the first question is, what is the most significant relationship in your life? Aside from my wife, it doesn't have to be, <laughs> it doesn't doesn't have to be, to be yeah, romantic, like, but it could be romantic yeah. no, no, as well. I'll, no, I'll say it's with it's with books. Mm. It's with books. That's dope. I think it's the first. You're the first person that inanimate like, object. Yeah, yeah, an inanimate oh, object. Oh, is that right? Yeah, Other no, people said someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. with books. Books that's opens dope. up your perspective to so many different worlds. Mm. Um, so it's with books, yeah. What is like some of the, like if you could give us like, maybe like one to five books or how many of, how many uh, amount of books that you want to recommend? I, well, as I mentioned, Jonathan Kozel's Amazing Grace was a very kind of important book for me. Mm. Um, but I would also say uh, the Nigerian writer Chino Achibe, who wrote a book called Things Fall Apart. Oh, if Things Fall Apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah if, you're, sure. if you're familiar with The Roots, they have of an course. album named after Things Fall Apart. Uh, Achibe is an interesting figure because that book is about the kind of the changes that occur uh to a particular group as a result of colonialism. Mm-hmm. And there were times where I thought about Achibe before he passed away, taught at Bard College, and I was really considering going to Bard College because I really wanted to just take one class with him. Mm. Uh, and it's so interesting to me because that book about a place that I'd never been hit home because it's about transformation. It's about things falling apart and how someone is able to maintain uh, and that to me was like a very important book for me. Mm. Um, I would say my f- the book that kind of opened my eyes politically um, was a book by Richard Wright um, called Black Boy, which is a kind of autobiographical work. Uh, it's a book that I had to read during Prep for Prep, mm. and it opened my eyes to the immense legacy of, of racism in America mm. and slavery. Yeah. And if you call yourself an American— You should read that book. And you don't have a full acknowledgement of the utter devastation uh, placed upon people of African ancestry in this country. Uh, That's ridiculous. That's that is our history. No Mm. matter, like, as a Korean American, that is my history. I have to take responsibility for that because I get benefits from the state Mm. that contributed to that. You see what I'm saying? That's deep, yo. So for me, learning about that, especially from a first-person perspective, right. was amazing. Mm. It's also just good literature. Right, right, but, right. But yeah, so Richard Wright's Black Boy. Nice. Yeah. Damn, yo. Three back-to-back gems right there, man. <laughs> yo, crazy. listeners, make sure you go on Amazon right now. <laughs> Cop all those joints. Um, so the second wrap-up question, JoJo, would you like to take yeah. that home? So you kind of alluded to your personal mantra already, or one of them, which yeah. is be more selfish. Yeah. Do you have another go-to that you'd like to share with our audience? It's 
for me, I feel like Be Selfish kind of captures it. But if there was another one, I would say Keep It Moving. Mm. Uh, for me, it's like, I don't know why having a short memory is something that I always admire about people. Uh-huh. Um, when you when you hear about elite athletes, yeah, they have a bad game and they ruminate on it for that night and the next day it's gone. Mm. And I love that. And of course, uh, it's not easy. People who are suffering from trauma, those things aren't like so easy. Letting to, go. That's right. But I think um, keeping it moving means doesn't mean that you're getting ahead. Doesn't mean you're moving forward. It's just you're moving. And mobility is important. Activity is important. You don't have to get to a particular destination. All of our destinations are different. But mobility is important. You know, like sharks, they have to keep moving. I don't know if you've ever heard mm-hmm. that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they can't I, stay still. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's important. You know what I mean? Like stasis is not good for the mind or the body. You know, that's why sitting is so bad for us. You know what I mean? So that's why it's just keep it moving. Yeah. And it's also a very New York phrase. No, yeah. for real. <laughs> that's a, that's a very moving. New York mentality. No, I mean, my mind straight went to Han when oh, he said really? that. Of, you know, keep it moving and like speaking of holding on to things yeah. and um, intergenerational trauma. Oh, yeah. Um, but that'll be for another episode. Yeah, Maybe we should I'm... do like a quarterly, like, no, check bring in. back yeah. Sam. Yeah, check yeah. In. Yeah. I'd be happy to. You know I'd be happy yeah. to. For sure. So on that note, man, thank, um, I would like to thank uh, Sam for uh, pulling up. I mean, he's only in New York for like a week, and then he decided to, we just kind of... Grace us with this Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I appreciate like, we just, I, I just hollered at him. I was like, damn, I really want to have Sam on the podcast. Um, but yo, Sam, like, you know, time for you to make some shout outs, man. Like, where can people find you? Uh, you, I have a website. It's sam-han.org. Mm. Um, of course, you're an academia. You're in, you're in academia. I know man. you kind of need a and website. And with the .org. I know the .org. Dot org. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm sam underscore underscore han. Uh. I'm private, but. Um, but he has a lot of interesting thoughts on it, I, man. But I, I pretty much kind of am indiscriminate about yeah. following people. Mm. So I, I don't. That's probably a bad thing, but I just do. Mm. Um, so yeah, just I would love to kind of engage with people about anything. Uh, yeah, yo, for real. Mm-hmm. So on that note, I think I need to make a shout out to um, all the listeners for uh, tuning in. If you, if this is the first time listening to Six Ninety Nine for Pound Podcast, man, you could check us on Apple. You could check us on Stitcher, Spotify. Where else, man? SoundCloud, Anchor, Anchor. of course, Anchor. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Anchor. You know what I mean? I'm looking forward to the checks that you're going to yes, bring please. in. For sure. <laughs> so follow 699 per pound on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I mean, mostly Instagram. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We, we don't really have the bandwidth to be on Twitter. active everywhere. <laughs> uh, but yeah, on that note, it's another episode of 699 per pound podcast. This is J.K. Cho. Jojo Park. Signing off with the illustrious guest Sam Han. You're looking up. Yes, sir. Bong, bong. Hey, yo, it's 699 per pound. Podcast. Don't